and it's really what led me to my relationship with the Yankees, where it led me to my relationship with all, so many big name players, um, not trying to figure out what I can get from them, but what I could do for them, what value I could provide. And value is what you could do for someone that they can't do for themselves. Not enough people talk about value when they're talking about their services and product is that what they could really do for you that they, that person can't do for themselves. And that's value. And that usually is a differentiator with so many products, whether they do really well or whether they're extraordinary products or services that you provide. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. Hey everybody, Nick Nanton here and welcome back to Now to Next. I have got uh, Brandon Steiner here with me on this episode of the podcast and live stream. And uh, I've known Brandon for a little while. We connected uh, maybe a year or two ago through our mutual friend, Rudy. And uh, it's great to have you on, Brandon. How you doing, man? Nice to see you. And, you know, Rudy is always an inspiration. So now as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at that jersey thinking that I got to put in 120% into this conversation. I, I love it. Brandon, you got a super unique story. I wasn't even aware of all of it until I started digging into your books. And so uh, I'm excited to dig into it. I'm going to give a brief bio here so everyone knows who we're speaking with. And uh, here goes. Uh, Brandon Steiner is an author, speaker, and media personality who founded Steiner Sports, a sports marketing and memorabilia company in 1987 and grew it into a $50 million empire and the most successful sports memorabilia company of its kind. He has worked with some of the biggest athletes and brands in the world and is also widely known for having bought the old Yankee Stadium, which is an epic story we're going to get into. Uh, Brandon's the author of three books. You should check them all out. Uh, the Business Playbook, You Gotta Have Balls, and Living on Purpose. So we'll talk a little bit about each of those. Uh, today, Brandon speaks worldwide, mostly through Zoom today, uh, to audiences primarily on the topic of how to grow your business by differentiating yourself from your competitors, through building relationships, motivating your team, increasing productivity, and anticipating your customers' needs. And by the way, some of those some of those phrases can sound cliche because a lot of people pretend they know about them, but Brandon really does. So I'm excited to go through that. And he's also the founder and CEO of Collectible Exchange and the Steiner Agency. Brandon lives in Scarsdale, New York with his wife, Mara, and they have three grown children. Uh, Brandon, did I lose you? Not at all. <laughs> Just dropped something on the floor. Oh, you're good. All right, so... You're born 1959, Flatbush, Brooklyn, to your, uh, your parents, uh, and they were extremely poor. Uh, tell me about how that affected you growing up that way. Well, I mean, I think when you grow up uh, without some of the necessary things, I mean, all you know is what you know until one day you realize that maybe, because you only know what you know. And then one day you realize, that, I think it was the fifth grade when I got called up to the front of the class, Mr. Kerper, my fifth grade teacher, gave me an envelope of money. And I was like, what's this for? He says, well, we took a collection. We want you to buy some clothes. And even as an 11-year-old, it's, that's very humiliating. And I asked him, I said, how do you know I need clothes? He said, well, you've been wearing the same pants for three weeks in a row. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, you have a rip in your right knee. And, you know, I, I, it, 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 it hit me. When I went home and I told my mother that we had collected this money, she made me go back and give it back. We're fine. Of course, I was going to buy you clothes at, you know, somewhere in the school break. And 
you know, I went back to my room and I did give him back the money. I, I don't, I don't remember what what happened there, but it occurred to me that I needed it. I don't know what sparked this thing in my head that I said, Brandon, you need to take control. So I remember going to my mother's room. I remember I'm 11, and I'm like, actually, I was, yeah, I was 10 or 11, and, and I was, and um, I said to my mother, I'm going to go out and get a job. And uh, on Saturday morning, I said, look, I'm going to don't worry about me anymore. I got it. And I have young kids throughout the years, and I don't know, get your 10, 11 year up just in the morning, get them dressed is, is a chore, let alone they're going to get up and work on their own. I got up. I spent that whole day up and down the King's Highway, which is a long strip. And then I found Freddie the Fruit Man, and I, I started delivering fruit and vegetables and stocking fruit and vegetables. And every Saturday, I, I work all day, and then I started actually working during the week as well. And, you know, it's interesting, like, when I look back on that story, because, you know, when you go to food banks and you have to get food, you're on food stamps. I mean, it's very humbling and humiliating. But I think when you have adversity, like I felt at that point, I now realize I did. And everybody does in their own way. You know, you have to you have to kind of say to yourself, like, you know, you got to take responsibility. You got to do something about it and you can't drown in it. So, you know, I went and I did something about it and, and I've been accountable ever since. You know, I've been working you know, for the last 50 years, day in and day out, not missed many days. And, I, you know, people that are listening, it's like it's amazing how much your past sometimes can dictate your future and how often sometimes your past is like kryptonite. Because of something that happened 30 years ago, now you're hesitant. But if you take accountability for where you are and responsibility, because I usually could say, you know, my parents are divorced. It was just a rough start. You know, what am I going to do? But when you take accountability for where you are, regardless, it really enables you to springboard toward what you're really here to do. And, that, and that's what I, I love about that lesson for me, although it was a low point for me to live like the way we were living. But I love the fact that I took responsibility, and that's what I've learned to do even as an adult. It's like when bad shit happens, which it does to everyone, no one escapes it. You know, you can make excuses. You can ask what happened, why me, and then you can say to yourself, you know, why me? Because this is part of life. Now what are you going to do about it? And, and when you do something about it, you, most things that happen to us, most things, you can fix, and you can then springboard from there. I love it. Yeah, it's 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 how you respond, right? And, and so there's a, a great quote uh, in, in an interview you did where you said, um, "I always looked at my challenging circumstances as a great opportunity. I wasn't necessarily thinking when I was a kid that I was poor and disadvantaged. I was thinking about the fact that I had a lot of upside if I can figure things out." Now, if that isn't mindset, I don't know what it is. Because at the end of the day, we all have we all have adversity, but mindset is what makes us either a prisoner. Or someone with freedom. And so I, I love hearing that you were thinking about that, you know, from from those moments uh, back then. Now, you also, um, you started a paper route. You started adopting working strategies that you learned from your mother, who asked you a very simple question. Uh, what else? What else can you do for people? And so give us a little bit about the, the background of, of that phrase and what it's done for you in your career. Well, just one, one small thing, and then I, I, I'll say that, and that is a lot of times the adversity stuff can be just tremendous inspiration. We saw it in the Michael Jordan last dance. As I tell people all the time, it doesn't really matter where you are. It does not matter what your situation is. What matters is what you're willing to accept. And like to me, even at a 10, 11-year-old, I just wasn't willing to accept it. And I wasn't going to get bitter about it either. I was just going to do something about it. And I was very confident that I, at some point I could figure that out. 
So, you know, I went to go see my mother one day and I said, Mom, you know, I need a career change. I, I, I just need more free time. I, I don't really like the way the work schedule is going. I'm not able to spend enough time with my friends. And she's like, you're 12. What are you talking about? I said, well, you know, when you deliver the fruit and vegetables, it's every Saturday all day. And then it's after school. And, you know, it's a little bit crimp. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. You know, I'm, I'm 11, you know, 12. Like, like, and she's like, well, you should get a paper route. And that you can do in the morning. Wake up a little earlier. And you only have to collect the money one night a week. And you can do whatever you want after school. So sure enough, I go to the paper route store on Avenue X and East 3rd Street. And I see a sign on the glass window that's going to change my life. It says, whoever opens up the most accounts this month will win a box of candy bars. Game change. You know, starving, not a lot of money. I bring a box of candy bars home. Money. So sure enough, I go out, I'm knocking on doors, and I got to tell you, man, nothing. I got zero. I go home and say, Mom, here comes the excuse machine. We got to move out of this neighborhood. The people are cheap. This place is horrible. My mother says, Sit down. I want to tell you something right now. You got to stop selling. You think you're going to walk around this neighborhood and sell something that people can get elsewhere? Now, I had gone to this older woman's house who had probably about 80 years old. And I know she was getting the paper delivered. There was a stack right inside her door. But then she was bitching because she said, I get the paper from the corner store at eight cents. I said, it's the same price for me. She says, yeah, but then I got to tip you. So I said, you know, mom, these people are just cheap. They don't. She said, well, you got to differentiate yourself. But what I want you to do is I want you to stop selling and I want you to start serving and solving. You need to become a solution-based business person. Find people's problems and solve them, and then they'll want to do business with you. Differentiate yourself. So I'm knocking all these doors and everything, and I got to tell you, nothing. I go back to this woman's door. It's 10 o'clock on a Thursday night. I remember like it was yesterday. She thinks it's like a fire, you know, who knocks on an 80 year old woman's door at 10 o'clock at night? I said, Sonny, I told you I don't want to get that paper to Are you crazy? Is something wrong? I said, just give me one minute, man. If this torrential downpour, snowstorm, heat wave, the weather's just bad, a woman says yourself shouldn't be outside. And I bring you milk and bagels every Wednesday and Sunday. And if you need something else, I'll bring you that too. You would do that for me? I said, I'm concerned. A woman, you know, you're a little elderly. You, bad weather, you probably need some up. That is so sweet. So she signs up and gets the paper for me. What I didn't realize that she knew everyone in the neighborhood. She was the general. I went from 29 dailies to 199 dailies and 234 Sundays. Crazy, I even remember that number. And I had swagger and I was rock and roll. I couldn't even deliver the papers on a bicycle. I had to get two shopping carts, two, two rides on Sunday. And what I tell people, that when I tell that story, which a lot of people have delivered papers back in the day is, First of all, you're listening to your customers and really understanding what they need, not what you want to sell. And are you a solution-based salesperson? Are you thinking about your customers and what problems you could solve? And I found an elderly woman who, of course, when there's ice and snowstorms, that's an issue for her to get outside and get her basic needs. And now she's got somebody that could do that for her. In exchange, she's going to tip me a little bit and get the paper. I didn't realize it was going to be the mother load. But I think that happens so often in business that you're so consumed with selling what you want, you're not really listening to what the customer really needs and how they need it presented. And it's a game changer for me in my life, that lesson about serving, solving, and being a solution-based salesperson. And it's really what led me to my relationship with the Yankees, what led me to my relationship with so many big-name players, um, not trying to figure out what I can get from them, but what I could do for them, what value I could provide. And value is what you could do for someone 
that they can't do for themselves. Not enough people talk about value when they're talking about their services and product is that what they could really do for you that they, that person can't do for themselves. And that's value. And that usually is a differentiator with so many products, whether they do really well or whether they're extraordinary products or services that you provide. I love it. I have not heard that definition of value, but it's uh, super simple and uh, and concise. I've always told my clients when I'm I'm sharing with them, you know, price is only an issue when value is a mystery. You know, if you build the value in anything you like that someone, then the price doesn't matter. You know, it's as uh, one of my mentors, Dan Kennedy, would say, really, what you're trying to do is sell money at a discount because everyone will buy that, right? So how do you figure out how to make it that valuable? The other thing that I love uh, about that is is just you know, I, I share with my clients and I, you know, anytime you're not sure what to do next, uh, it's pandemic is a great example right now. You know, I, like many business owners, I'm sure like you at the beginning of this whole pandemic, wasn't exactly sure how to serve or what I was, what to do. And I just started saying, well, how can I serve my marketplace? How can I serve my customers? And, you know, of course you got to forget how do I serve my family too? Because a lot of times we forget that lesson. We serve everybody else, but our family. But I think whenever you're not sure what to do next, just a, a great tip from all that that you said is just is show up and serve. Trust me, the opportunity, the money will find you. Because if you are passionate about serving people in whatever way, shape or form that is, the rest of life gets pretty easy. So. Well, I always say helping people is not a burden. It's an opportunity that will lead you to sheer joy. And if you believe that one of the reasons why we're here is, well, there's two real reasons. One is to help one another. That's why we're here. That's why God gives us these challenges of viruses and, and all kinds of different things to remind us that we're not alone and that we need each other to get through. And the other reason why we're here is just to get better and to do better. We're the only species on the planet that can improve, that can get better. There's no other species that God has created that can get better. You know, since it's going to poop, eat for 17 hours a day, sleep. And they've been around thousands of years and they haven't gotten better. And once in a while, they're going to have sex. I mean, you know, so when you think about the opportunity you have as a human to serve and to help one another and, and, and to get better and to improve. That's probably the only reason why we're here. So... You got to keep that in mind. You know, if you want a good friend and you need a good friend, you know, start off by being a good friend. And if you want to have better customers, try to be better to your customer and try to figure out how you can add more value. Great point. I was speaking with uh, a friend of mine the other day and, and he wrote this great thing. Uh, John Rooney has a book called Giftology. And he said, love that book, by the way. Love John. Love that book. Okay, yeah, great. He nailed it. He nailed it. Absolutely. And, and you know, he says so many times we, we tell our, well, first of all, if we don't treat our employees and our team like we want them to treat our customers, we've got a huge disconnect. Uh, and second of all, he says, you know, we often ask our, our team to give a Ritz-Carlton experience to our clients, and we never stop to ask, have they, have they ever experienced a Ritz-Carlton experience themselves? And I thought it was just very valid, you know, very valid thoughts. Most of us just skip over. Um, you, you finished up high school in 1977, went to Syracuse, um, took a job with Hyatt Hotels, and you moved back to New York City in 84 uh, to, to open and manage operations at the new Hard Rock Cafe, just the third one in the world. Is that, the, is that still in the same location? Is that the one in Times Square? Or is that a different one? No, no, that, that was on 57th Street. Now they, that, that one moved to Times Square, which is, that's an amazing location too. But the one on 57th was insane. It was just, it would, there'll never be another restaurant opening like that. Nothing to do with me, even though I was assistant GM and it was quite a challenge, but 
you know, there were over 250 people online for the first year, just about every day from two in the afternoon to two in the morning. Uh, and then it was a 250 seat restaurant with two bars and that was completely packed. So I, I don't know if you're ever going to see a, a restaurant promoted and have that kind of hype. I've not seen of anything like that in my lifetime. Isaac Tigrate was a genius uh, who was the founder of the Hard Rock Loan with Peter Morton. And uh, that was some concept. And, and I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from that idea. Even though I was a young kid coming out of school, I'd gotten a lucky break to get that job, frankly. Um, actually, it was a lottery ticket break, frankly. But, you know, there's so many lessons you learn. And that's what I really try to tell younger people that just because, you know, you, what you're doing isn't necessarily your, de it's not your destination. A lot of times it's your transportation. And there's so many lessons learned in your younger days when you're working, you're doing things that you know isn't going to be the finality of what you want to do, but they really do end up playing a vital role in making you who you are if you pay close enough attention and take everything seriously. I, I totally agree. All right, so then um, you started then working with the sporting club, and it seemed to be your first uh, activity with athletes. Tell us sort of how that came about when you started doing there. Well, you know, I'm at the Hard Rock from like two in the afternoon to about four in the morning, probably getting somewhat ill at that point because the music's really loud and, you know, just the volume. And I, I had no idea, you know, that I probably needed some help in running that place at night. But I always said like, wow, this would be cool to do. Remember, there was no sports bars in the country in 84 other than the, uh, the Bobby Valentine had one in Connecticut, a small little dive bar and that place called The Ultimate in Chicago. So I was thinking, like, it would be cool to do this, but in sports. And I met this limited part of the Yankees, Billy Rose, who wanted to do a, a sports thing, but it was he wanted to do something upscale. And I talked him into, we had a Las Vegas uh, scoreboard in there, and it was, you know, multiple TVs. And not, nobody had done anything like that, which is hard to imagine because now everywhere you go is multiple TVs. Matter of fact, if the restaurant doesn't have a TV, you think something's wrong. But this was unbelievable. And we had the only satellite dish even in New York, in Manhattan. So uh, when I took him to the Hard Rock, he's like, I love this. And then we decided we we're going to do something like the Hard Rock Britain Sports. And that's really where I met all these athletes because a lot of them were coming in to watch competitive games and watch sporting events outside the New York area. You know, back in those days, you had a couple games a week to watch. Now you watch everything every day, all day. But back then, there were only a couple games of the week and stuff. So athletes were constantly coming in, management, general managers. So I got to meet so many people in the sports business. And that was my entree into it. Wow. And and then uh, you transitioned into, well, you, you got another job offer and it didn't quite work out. Uh, and then you decided you're going to take, again, you're going to take it into your own hands. Uh, you used $4,000 in savings in 87 to launch a sports marketing company named Steiner Associates, which later became Steiner Sports. Um, I love the fact that the goal of the company was to pair athletes with businesses that needed to draw customers. The fact of the matter is it, it started with a need. It, it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to do this thing because I want to do athletics. It's like, oh, I'm going to help, help fill up restaurants. I'm going to use athletes to do that. Tell us how you did that. Well, first of all, you know, I'm in an office by myself. Um, you know, I got an intern and, and a receptionist that is reception for five other companies. So I'm sitting there and I'm trying to think, you know, I'm doing some consulting for some restaurants because the sports bar thing had taken off. So I'm doing some promotions with them. And I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, some, there's a lot of companies that could probably use help using an athlete. And they just, in those days, they just didn't do a lot of that. There were only a couple of companies doing that. Uh, and 
what I first instinct was is how do I get more data? How can I get more information? So when I go pitch companies, because I was destined to go and start pitching companies ideas of how to use athletes to help them grow their business. And I did a survey. I remember being up till four in the morning, sending out thousands of surveys to any athlete I could possibly think of to either their team, if I had an address, anywhere I could send it. And I got back about out of the thousands. I have the rejection letters, by the way. They're amazing. Uh, some really cool ones, too. Some really big names. I had some balls back then. I was writing like every athlete. But a lot of them filled out the survey. And remember, there was no computers there. So then I find out like Lawrence Taylor loves Tropicana orange juice. I call up the guy from Tropicana orange juice or the woman who was the marketing manager and say, I know you don't believe this, but Lawrence Taylor loves Tropicana orange juice. You should use him in a promotion. He loves the product. We could probably do something for some trade where you give him all the orange juice he wants and a little bit of money. And I started calling up companies with that kind of mindset. And I had all this data that I, I just remember how it was such an ordeal to complete, to put together a computer program that I could take all this data and put it on. So when people would call me, I would know athletes that were sick, athletes that had certain uh, products they like, things they like to wear, games they like to play if they had kids, parents that died of certain illnesses. So when I would call pharmaceutical companies, I would say, oh, you you got this new knee product? I'll give you 10 athletes right now that have a knee problem, that had ACL injuries or whatever. And I became a really good source to, for companies to use me that wanted to really make an honest, authentic connection with a talent. And that's really how I got my company started. That, and I was doing the player fan mail. I, again, find value. Like, I said, how do I get close to these athletes? So I went to like 15 athletes in the area and said, who's doing your fan mail? You got boxes of fan mail piling up. There was no internet. And they felt guilty about throwing it out. So I would take those boxes of fan mail, go through them. Out of like 2,000 letters, maybe there were two opportunities, maybe, to make some money. money. A bunch of sick kids you want to take care of, so I have, the, I have to go back, have the athlete sign a nice card or a letter, hoping they feel better, whatever, maybe even call the kid. And I found purpose. You know, it was like the athletes were appreciating something I was doing for them that they couldn't do themselves. So it was a simple strategy of how do we get closer with the athletes and how do I come up with an idea that gets me on the phone with corporate clients without just hanging up with me thinking I was just going to pitch them. Uh, I, I love it. Again, it's, it's about serving. And so what um – where did you start getting into the memorabilia side of the business? Because really, you pretty much created that business. How did that, how did that come about? It came about, it was not Nathan's. We just did a grand opening with Everson Walls. Seems like it was yesterday. It was 1991. And I think I gave Everson Walls $1,500. This is a whole day on Sunday. And I think I made $250. And I remember coming home, my wife saying, I think you may want to start looking for a job because you're working like crazy, which I was. Uh, and I wasn't making that much money. And, and I, I said, hi, no question on Monday. I'm going to I'm gonna start looking. Uh, you're right. You know, we're going to have a family one day. And I went on my way to the office. I said, this is no way I can look for a job. I got to make this work. Again, back to acceptance, high level of non-acceptance. So I start really thinking about what I could do. And one of the things I thought of was that every time I do an appearance, maybe they'll want to buy some collectibles along with it. I wasn't thinking about starting a collectible business. I was thinking, you go book Roger Starback. I bring some helmets, some footballs. You give that to your clients. You give that as a gift to some of your employees. And I was just thinking of a corporate kind of uh, add-on extension. I book Roger Starback for ten grand. I make a thousand dollars. I go sell a bunch of helmets, footballs, and everything else. I could probably make a couple grand on that. Now it's becoming. I'm expanding my margin. Plus, I'm serving the client, giving them some stuff that they really want. And that was the beginning of Steiner Collectibles. Like that was the beginning of. Just figuring out a what else moment was, 
you know, figuring out something that the client needed, expanding my margins, and enabling me to live another day without having to go work for someone and maintain and keep my company, which I was really close to giving up there. I was thinking, man, if I can't get this going, I may have to go back to work for someone and go get a job. And I really didn't want to do that. So your high level of unacceptance is very consistent. And when people ask me about what brings you to, to the level you're at, why are you able to do is I've been able to maintain a high level of unacceptance. That's, that's a, a good thing as well. Tell me about um, your, uh, your connection with the Yankees and your partnership with the Yankees and, and how that got started and where you were able to take that. Well, you know, when I started the collectible thing and all of a sudden people started calling me looking for different items and different things and started taking off, I realized it, was, it happened at a time when there's a lot of fraudulent stuff. And I had a reputation of being connected to a lot of athletes, so it worked out well that people trusted me, trusted the name, and knew that the Steiner seal meant that it was real, and they knew that I, would be, I was doing the right thing. But then I hit a wall. I was like, I don't know how I grow this business. People aren't taking the collectible thing seriously. And I think that what people need to realize is that when you are a leader, you want to be a leader in an industry. You have to do often what's best for the industry, even though it's not always best for you. And, and I think sometimes people, you know, when you talk about, you know, politics or, or whatever it is in leadership, you have to look at the, the common good more than you have to look at for the good for you. And it's easy talking about, easy said, hard to do. You know, it's hard, man, hard to be doing stuff with the bigger picture. What do you know? It doesn't necessarily. So I'm thinking, how do I grow this thing? And I said, I got to get the teams involved. And I started calling up teams and seeing if they would do partnerships with me. And I got to be honest with you. Thank God my butt is still intact because that door hitting it on the way out was painful. That's even if I got the meeting of the call. I can't tell you how many teams I called. They want no part of me. And uh, I finally got somebody on the phone from the Yankees. And we ended up doing a meeting. And I end up, you know, talking about, and it started with not a money grab. You know, the, the partnership I did with the Yankees was about protecting their fans, figuring out how they would not end up like, you know, with so many Babe Ruth bats that are fake and this and that. So they wanted to protect all this stuff that was coming out of the stadium and make sure that fans weren't getting duped. So it started by just putting together a program maybe that, that had a higher level of authentication and making sure that the stuff that was leaving the stadium was done the right way and put into the right hands. And then, you know, Randy Levine and, you know, we talked for a long time and we ended up coming up with an idea of starting a, a joint venture in a company. And uh, part of that deal was an understanding that if they ever sold the stadium, that maybe they would you know, hopefully get me involved with that. What I love about the Yankees is they keep their word. They're very smart. And, you know, three or four years later, after I started that partnership, they're like, by the way, we're building a new stadium. I said, can I take the old one down? Well, it's not going to be easy. I think it was 18, we had to put $18.5 million up to do it. And I had a pretty, aggressive, slow, long-winding process. You know, I wanted to cut it up into hundreds of thousands of pieces. Yep. And most people didn't agree with me on it. But when I sat with the Yankees, I said, look, this is a very emotional thing to leave that stadium. And I think we got to take it down with respect. I think we got to give as many Yankee fans a chance to buy it, whatever it is, a piece of the black, a piece of the foul pole, a piece of the grass, some dirt, a locker, a chair, whatever it is. And, and you know something, they supported me. I give them a lot of credit, man. I don't know if I would have supported me. I, I think I was crazy to do that. But they bought into that. They, they agreed. And when I say supported me, it was, it was a lot of work on their end, you know, marketing-wise and, and the support end of just doing all this. And I'm glad I did it because I know how many Yankee fans out there now have a little piece of like what I think is one of the greatest stadiums of all time, even though I see some really good stadiums popping up, including the new Yankee Stadium. 
So that's how that all comes about. And uh, it was quite an undertaking. It was because, you know, the partnership with the Yankees, which led to the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers, Notre Dame, Alabama. It really was to get the industry going and to give it the pop that I know it needed. And I figured, look, if I can get the industry going, I'm a leader. I'll benefit too because as the industry goes, I go. But I had to go do that because I was really struggling to get the teams and the players to understand what I was doing in the bigger picture. And I knew once the teams got involved, they could promote it to their fans, which is ultimately my customer. And I knew the business would get bigger. And it did. And uh, I'm glad I did it. It didn't benefit me as much as when I look back on it, as much as maybe I would have liked. But I now look at so many teams that have used my system and used my process to formulate authentication divisions. And it's now made the autograph and made memorability business so much bigger. And I'm glad I was able to play a role in that. That's awesome. And and you ultimately sold Steiner Sports. And then uh, you've created some new things, uh, the Collectible Exchange and the Steiner Agency. Tell us what you're doing these days. I mean, the Steiner Agency is the same thing I've been doing since day one, which is, you know, basically helping companies grow using athletes. And I do it on a little higher level now because there are a lot of companies, a lot of startups there where athletes will invest in those companies or they want them as spokespersons and partnerships. And, and being that there's so many small new companies, that, that's been a lot of fun for me, that part of the business. Collectible exchange is something that, you know, after putting 30 million collectibles out into the marketplace over these years, there's so much stuff out there and it really isn't a safe, good platform for people to sell their stuff. So here I am, I created a kind of a much better form of eBay, but just for collectibles. That's for collectible exchanges for people to buy and sell their stuff. And then in, in about a month, in the middle of January, we're launching Athlete Direct, which is a similar site, but just for athletes alone, where you can buy stuff directly from athletes. And only athletes or professional college coaches can put stuff up on Athlete Direct. So I really wanted to do in this next version of my life here, the ability to get fans and get athletes closer to fans and get fans closer to athletes and get fans closer to the game. And by going on a site and being able to buy something from your favorite athlete directly is awesome. And uh, creating more proprietary stuff instead of just to crank it out volume that I was kind of getting into for a while there at the end of my last company. Collectible exchange is we're doing more proprietary stuff. Love it. Now, yeah, getting into sort of that bespoke uh, level of what you could provide if, if the athletes uh, willing to do it and you've got a buyer is pretty interesting. What are some of the more... What are some of the most interesting collectibles you, you've ever seen? Maybe things that surprised you, their value, or surprised someone would sell something like that? What, what are some of the more interesting things you've seen? Well, I mean, I've, I've been doing I did signs with Mickey Mantle and spent plenty of time with the Yogi Bears and Johnny Unitas and Joe Montana's. And, I mean, one of my favorite collectibles that I sold was Don Larson's perfect game uniform. But there'll never be another game. There'll never be a, a perfect game in a World Series deciding game like that. I mean, it's such a... I mean, it's such a moment of time you think about a guy going in and pitching a perfect game under the most incredible circumstances. So that's one of the coolest things. I mean, listen, selling off some of the stuff at Yankee Stadium, particularly Jeter's Locker, or stuff like that was cool. But I, I've sold, you know, I sold a bunch of uh, Texas Stadium when the Cowboys moved out of there, Madison Square Garden, uh, as well as Giant Stadium. I've done a whole bunch of different stadiums, and I see some really cool stuff as I'm breaking that stuff down particularly the bricks in the old Yankee Stadium were up in the ceiling in the batting cage. Those bricks were from 1929. Really cool bricks. You know, I've sold a lot of bricks. The thing I worked on lately, you know, Syracuse Dome, uh, I took the roof off the building just to put a flat roof on there, and I'm selling the actual dome 
the roof on the dome. I cut it up into about maybe 50 or 60 different products signed by Syracuse greats. And I figured out a way to print some of the coolest photos and games that happen at Syracuse on the dome. So you're able to buy these cool photos that are printed on the actual roof of the dome. Now, if you're not a Syracuse person, you may not think that's a big deal, but you know, the Syracuse dome in Syracuse is like the Yankee stadium uh, level. It's one of the most important buildings up there and some of the great moments. So I love those, you know, memorabilia is memories. And I think when you can translate the memories in a positive, kind of cool-looking way, I think you got something. Um, you know, I always had this, I had this argument with this guy from the New York Times. He was doing an article about collecting and a little negative. I said, let me ask you something. If you had a cocktail party this Saturday night, if I'm not a collector, I'm not really a sports fan, we wouldn't be talking about sports. But I said, exactly. But if you had a pair of Mickey Mouse 1957 Triple Crown cleats that were dirty, had a couple rips in them, you had them sitting on the coffee table in a case. You mean to tell me all your guests would come and completely ignore that, that those set of cleats that were signed by Mantle and use them in the Triple Crown year? It would be the talk of the night. You know, some of you're right. That would be pretty cool. I said, that's what collecting's all about. It's about the memories of, of some of the great things that have been accomplished by some of the great athletes and players. It's legacy stuff. And the fact that some of it goes up in value and some of it doesn't is part of it, but What's really interesting is is the accomplishments shouldn't be forgotten. It should not be just in a record book. And that's what I love about the whole business is you can kind of extend that that legacy. And why not? I mean, we have so much trials and tribulations on a day-to-day. Why not put all the positive stuff? Just like your Rudy helmet in the back there where you probably said he's five foot nothing, a yeah. hundred and nothing. Yeah. I mean, is there any greater story? I mean, I say Rudy, I say, Rudy, I got to get that on a helmet. I mean, is anything more inspiring, especially when you're talking to a kid that really maybe doesn't think he's cut it to make it, and then you just watch Rudy, and then you show him that helmet? So, I mean, I think that, and there's so much motivation with the memorabilia, which is what I initially wanted to do, was mostly motivational memorabilia. So I would send out a ball to a customer. I want to get the ball rolling. I sent out a hockey puck, no matter where he was in the country, of a team that was kind of a score. I'd say, we have the same goal in common. I would send a signed puck. If I was going to go meet somebody for the first time and give them a pitch, I would send them a signed baseball signed by a pitcher from the local area and say, I hope you're looking forward to my pitch. And I would send it to them a week ahead of time. Or send them a baseball bat saying, I hope you're looking forward to a home run year next year with me. So I was always thinking corporate memorabilia, not really that it was going to be a brand. So, you know, collectible exchange has taken, and my whole career has taken a direction I never saw coming. But I've always been about the business part of it all. You know, how do you drive business and how do you get people excited? And how do you get that old lady to answer the door the second time and say yes? You know, like, that's the stuff that, like, you got to love that. When I mean, you're working on a cut. Is, is there a better feeling when you're working on this customer? You finally figured it out, how to really help them or drive their sales or do something unique for them. And now they're doing well, you're doing well. That's 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 a good feeling, helping people. It, it, it absolutely is. Um, your, your latest book, I believe, uh, yes. Living on Purpose, is that right? Yes. Probably my best work, by the way, I might add. I, I love it. I'm, I'm glad you're not getting worse. Um, stories about faith, fortune, and fitness, uh, helping you live an extraordinary life. Tell us a little bit about that book and, and you know the, the three sections of that, faith, fortune, and fitness. Well, I was trying to, trying to figure out a topic that people would buy the book. And I figured, you know, everybody wants to get closer to God. So but actually, if you want to get closer to God, then you got to have to die. Uh, that's, and then hopefully you get real close. And if you want to lose weight and cut off an arm, but I guess nobody's willing to do that. So I knew the weight loss part of it would be attractive. 
and, and then everybody wants to get rich. You know, but there's no get rich scheme other than if you you have a relative that's rich and leaves you in their in their will, maybe, or you buy a lottery ticket. So, but those are three hot buttons, and that's how I come up with the name of the book. But you know what I love about the book is, you know, I turned fifty at the time when I really started putting this book together, and I just started realizing that I hadn't prepared for success, and this, it, what was necessary and what what it, what toll it had taken. So I don't tell you what to do, but I showed you what to do because I, I tell, people ask me all the time, "Do you ever think you're gonna be this successful?" I'm like, yeah, of course I did. Everything I started this business thing, I was gonna fail. But what most people don't think about is, what are you gonna do after you get the success? You know, you go to college, you work your tail off to try to get through college, but you do think about what you're going to do after college. So, I mean, why wouldn't you have the confidence as you're driving your career? Why wouldn't you assume that eventually you're going to get to where you want to go? But most people don't think about what they're going to do after that. And it really hit me that, you know, the real purpose was about helping people, some of the charity, being a better dad, being a better husband. So I went out and got help. You know, I went and tried to really find people that were masters at all those other areas because I think I was the master. I always tell people, like, definitely really good at making money. I suck at everything else, but I'm good at making money. I suck at life. And I want to be really good at life. You know, I want to be better at life, you know, whatever it may be. So in that book, what I love is that it just gives you so many great nuggets of how to just be better at all parts of your life, which it all adds up together. All the pieces, you know, fit into the box. And at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to die just having been really, really good in business. And, and one of the examples I use in the book is most of us spend every minute, you know, they go to a conference, they'll read a book, they'll call a customer, they'll get on a plane and do anything they can to be better at business and to make more money. But when I ask people, it's like, when was the last conference you went to to, be a, to learn how to be a better friend or to be a better spouse? Or when was the last conference you went to for, for your faith reboot? When was the last conference you went to just to focus on learning how to be healthier? And people do it minimally. Minimally. Oh, I went to the gym a couple of times, whatever. And I'm saying, don't you think all those buckets work together and should equally be on a high level? So I wrote a book that didn't tell you what to do, but showed you how to increase the level of all those buckets through stuff that I did and how, what I learned from some other people. So it's always easy to, be, to see the examples of how much of a shit I was and how I kind of pulled myself out of the ground to be better. I love it. And that book is Living on Purpose. You can find that on Amazon uh, or anywhere books are, are sold. Uh, Brandon, it's free. By the way, it's free on Collectible Exchange through the end of January. If you want, you can get a copy for free. I'm just figuring we're the virus. It's just a nice pick-me-up. So I, I offer them for free if people want them. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, Brandon, as, as we wrap up here, you've had a, yep. a crazy interesting career. You've learned, spent a lot of time with, with athletes. Maybe what is uh, one of your favorite lessons or two that you learned in epic storytelling fashion from a great athlete? Oh, boy, so many. I mean, you know, obviously the Mariano story is critical, you know, about, you know, when he had tore his knee up and uh, about having faith, you know, and, and I went to his house and he's like, Brandon, I got to get operated on. I'm like, you have an ACL tear. You have to get operated on it. He goes, I'm going to let my teammates down. I thought I was going to be able to come back. See if I'm working hard. And I said, you know, sometimes God will blow up what you have in order to make room for what's next. And right now, you've been thinking about ending your career. So he's blowing you up and giving you a chance to decide whether you want to finish your career off on a high note and enjoy it, or whether you want to go back into civilian life and live like a normal, regular, everyday person. And uh, he had to tear up your damn knee for you to go see that. 
uh, instead of, you know, sitting around bitching whether you should retire or not. Like, you know, figure out how much long you want to play and enjoy it because now the game's been taken away from you. And I've learned that sometimes that the good Lord, when you, don't, when you, don't, when you see the signals and signs and you hear the voice, listen. And if you don't, then God sometimes will step in and just throw a grenade on it just to wake you up and, and, and see what the deal is. And I'll tell you another valuable story I learned early on with Roger Staubach, and that was I was going to open up multiple offices around the country. And he said, Brandon, like, if you want to have a family and you want to really grow, you be careful about opening up another office. Because if you open up another office, you got to be in those offices. It means you're going to be on a plane, you're going to be flying, and you're going to get spread out a lot. And it's really hard to get your core competency right when you're in multiple offices, unless you're really, really set up to do so. You may want to take your time in doing that. And that was really valuable advice. So I was about to open up an office in Atlanta. And I, the thing I say is, you know, to, your first idea is not always your best idea. And a lot of times you don't need another building to grow. You just need to go look inside the building you're in and make it a little stronger, make it a little bit better. I think a lot of people who have had success are looking for other levels of success, but they can take the success they already have and go further with it. And uh, don't let success be a deterrent for more success. Well, you got to start looking into all kinds of different things because usually further success is staring you right in the face. It's right in front of you. We're just ignoring it. It's uh, the diamonds at your feet sort of story. Well, that's excellent. Uh, Brandon Steiner, check out Living on Purpose. Check out Collectible Exchange, uh, Steiner Agency. Brandon, th thanks so much for joining me here on Now to Next, and uh, I'll look forward to connecting again soon. I love it, man. Thanks for the time. Appreciate you. Have, have a happy, happy, safe Christmas and holiday. Likewise. Thanks. Take care. See you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.